Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. Over 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. Teaching While White seeks to move the conversation forward and how to be consciously, intentionally anti-racist in the classroom. Because white does not mean a blank slate. It is a set of assumptions that is the baseline from which everything is judged. It is what passes for normal. Which means if you are not white or don't adhere to those assumptions, you are abnormal or less than. We want to have conversations about those assumptions, what they are, how they impact our students, and how we can confront our assumptions to promote racial literacy. You are listening to Teaching While White. Hi, it's Jenna. And this is Elizabeth. In our last episode, we talked with Peggy McIntosh and Debbie Irving about how they realized that their white identity, their whiteness, as we sometimes say, had an impact in the classroom. Yeah, they talked about how it affected their relationships with their students, the way they delivered their curriculum, and just values they had that they never questioned. They both talked about the ways our national myths can cover up some of the history of racism in this country, and how it gets in the way of white people understanding or even recognizing their own racial identity. In this episode, we're going to talk with someone who has been exposing those myths and telling the history of how whiteness was created in this country. John Bewin is a longtime public radio journalist and documentarian. He is the audio program director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and he's just finished production of a 14-part podcast series called Seeing White, The program explores whiteness, where it came from, what it means, and how it works. We love this podcast. The series includes insights from the scholar and activist Chenjerai Komunika, who John describes as his collaborative conversationalist. I started our interview by asking John how he would define whiteness. You know, it it might come as a surprise that I, and and it's... uh, a little bit alarming to me that I don't have an immediate short answer to that question. I mean, the way that I have talked about it on the show uh, and the way that I kind of express it to myself is simply that when we look at race in the United States, and I say that my, my own background is as a journalist and documentary maker, and I've done a lot of work on race, that what I think of as being about race, right? Mm-hmm. And almost always what that means is that you're looking at the experience of people of color right. and uh, and that there's this kind of understood sense that there's a plight <laughs> that people of color have or that they are oppressed or that they have struggles or in you know to put it in kind of more conservative uh, you might say racist terms that there's something wrong with people of color that needs fixing but the gaze is usually directed at people of color in, the, in, in most of these kinds of contexts. Right. And so basically what we said with this project is let's turn the lens around and, and let's look at white people as a group, the white race. What is up with white people? 
Um, and so ultimately then, then that becomes, as you get into it, it becomes a look at, uh, at what do we mean by white supremacy? What do we mean by power structures that have been set up since the formation of this society? Um, and things like that. But, it, but yeah, the way that I've tended to frame it is just in that big picture. Let's look at white folks for a change. When I talk about whiteness, it's more like uh, whiteness as a kind of way of approaching the world and as a way of thinking about the world and as structuring the world, that it has these characteristics, none of which, as far as I can tell, are positive. It's not to say that there's nothing good about white people, right. but it's to say that whiteness, to the extent that we are participating in it <laughs> as a kind of uh, framework for the world, it's in a structure and a system right. that, uh, you know, there's really nothing positive about it. So when did you first know that you were white? That's an interesting question. I think I've always known I was white, but... Um, but it's also true that, you know, I've been thinking about these things for quite a long time and I've been reporting on race and reading about race. In the latest episode, the one that we just put out, uh, part 13, I talk about actually a moment that maybe more than other, any other single moment sparked the idea of thinking seriously about doing an actual series on whiteness on the show. Uh, and that was when I did this two-day anti-racism workshop from the Racial Equity Institute here in North Carolina toward the end of 2015. The information and the kind of picture that they painted in that two days, there was definitely a kind of dropping of the, <laughs> the scales from my eyes in a certain sense. The gap between the way that I think the average white American sees the world or sees our society and the reality that they were painting, which I found utterly persuasive and convincing, that that gap was so wide, you know, that it felt like, you know, here I, I, there's a chance to, uh, to bring to an audience uh, a picture that is very different from what most of us uh, have inherited and what we've got through osmosis as white Americans and what we've learned in school and from our parents and so on. So that felt like a real opportunity to me. Yeah, it's one of the things I love most about your show is sort of exposing these fables. I think you even call them fables um, and yeah. how history gets passed down about whiteness and excluding people of color from the story. I think that's right. And, and you know, the fable of, uh, and we said it again in this last episode, that you know, the sort of big picture fable, which is that um, the United States is this nation that was founded on this idea, all men are created equal. And that's really what we're about. We're a multicultural, multiracial society. And yes, there have been some bumps and <laughs> failings <laughs> along the way, but that's primarily what what this place is about and and although we've had to make progress and iron things out that we basically have meant well from the start and still do now that's a fable right that just that that just the the facts just don't square with that picture you know the 400 years of of uh, factual history so yeah there's there's the big picture fable and then there's 
within that lots of fables uh, that we tell ourselves about uh, you know and, the, and we get there I think maybe the example where I actually used that word was in the episode where we talked uh, told the story of a, a racial cleansing really a, an ex expulsion of all the black people in a town in Kentucky in 1919 a story that just uh, doesn't get told there anymore and is not publicly acknowledged so lots of fables large and small yeah and in another episode uh, Little War on the Prairie I think it's that episode um, yes. you do talk about how these fables um, you had never heard about the uh, execution the largest mass execution in U.S. history Mm -hmm. um, that happened in your own hometown. Is that right? That's right. And then uh, this is the part that just uh, really stuck with me and that I've been reliving, is that at one point you want to go see if this fable is still being told without, without the story of what happened to these um, Sioux and Dakota warriors. And you go to see what's being taught in the schools. And... Wow. <laughs> You record a third grade teacher in your hometown of Mankato, and um, you ask her how she teaches the War of 1862, right? Right. I asked her how she presents the War of 1862, standing with her in front of her students. We just talked about, like, a conflict is a disagreement. And we talked how the Dakota Indians didn't know how to solve their conflicts, and the only way they knew how to solve their disagreements was to fight which we know we don't fight when we solve conflicts, we use our words, but they, that was their only way that they knew how to solve a conflict, they fought. And so then the white settlers needed to fight back to protect themselves, and then and we talked about people were killed, and then we talked about how um, the Dakota Indians were, which we call... This, this is so uh, revealing. And frankly, I was stunned. I really, really didn't expect that sort of thing. I was not going into that school with the idea of, you know, of a got you uh, moment or of catching somebody out saying something racist. I've, I was completely taken aback. And the only reason she was talking about it with her third graders was that there, there's an annual uh, powwow now and all the third graders in town are taken to it as a field trip. And they so they also talk about some things about Dakota culture and so on and then and then just as part of that they talk briefly about the fact that there was this conflict. And so I was intrigued and I asked her well, I'm just wondering when you're talking to third graders about something that kind of uh, violent and difficult how do you how do you address it and that's and that's when that's when she gave that answer and I yeah my jaw kind of hit the floor and <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, I think it's important to expose those things. As you say, it's probably changed in the institution, and we need to unearth these fables. And, you know, in schools, I think, is where a majority of them get passed along. Mm. And I think about the field trip and going to a powwow and yet hearing this story simultaneously that there are violent people. And I you know, think of all the field trips to Plymouth Plantation or wherever mm. where these mm -hmm. fables get perpetuated. Yeah, and, and there again, I think I was naive, and I think that's another kind of naivete, is in thinking that we are farther along as a society uh, than we are. Yeah. You know, uh, that, that 
I, I, I just was taken aback. I didn't think that someone who had uh, gone through college probably in the 1990s and was now in her 30s as an elementary school teacher in Minnesota that, that you know, there would be somebody that would use that kind of uh, generalization. You know, Native people didn't know how to solve their conflicts. They only knew how to fight. Right. Um, and so, and so the white people had had to f- defend themselves, and so they had to fight. But, you know, so it was really it was like a 1920 interpretation of what used to be called the Sioux uprising. You know, that the savages just all of a sudden went nuts and started attacking the white settlers, which is how that story was told for a long time without all of the context of broken treaties and starvation and so on that was imposed on the Dakota people before they finally got a subset of them finally got mad enough and and rose up right more important than any sense of oh i guess i'm a white person or something like that has been more realizing the depths of racism and white supremacy that are still still at the core of who we are as a country i was never in the post-racial camp when right. Barack Obama was elected. I, I would never have said that, that we were done. But I think I probably, along with a lot of kind of liberalish white people, sort of felt like, well, you know, yeah, we, there's still racism, we still got problems, but we're kind of on a glide path now to, uh, you know, to, to having that behind us. And uh, we're, you know, a lot of the work is done and there's still work to do, but, it, you know, it's a matter of time and kind of steady progress and we're on the way. And, and you know, now it just feels like uh, in the last few years, it, it, it's been slapped upside the head many times that, uh, we're, you know, if anything, we're going in the other direction and, and there's a real kind of resurgence of, of white identity politics and... Uh, and you know, sort of a, a tantrum and a kind of uh, rising up of of whiteness to re- reassert itself. Right. At the end of one of your episodes, um, I think it was the danger one, uh, where Chandrai says, "There's always this sort of on the part of white people this desire to sort of patch systems and say, well, if we had more body cams or different training for police, for example, mm-hmm. instead of." Um, taking on the system and he asks you what is that white resistance about changing systems where does that come from I wonder if you came to any thoughts on that question I think it's a combination of of ignorance and of of you know sort of fear about what the ramifications would be if we really faced up to it and if we were to give up uh, white supremacy. If you just take in what the society and the culture present to you, you're not going to see <laughs> the truth of things very well because we don't learn a lot of the history that would help us see just how uh, pervasive it's been. And so, you know, you really have to get exposed or expose yourself to uh, alternative 
histories and points of view in order to see it. I, I, that, that's, that's what I would say. On the other hand, <laughs> I'm white, right? <laughs> right. And, so, and Chenjerai, Chenjerai, I think, seems genuinely mystified by, by that. And, and, and as he says in our latest episode, he says, just a cursory glance yeah. at the society and history and what goes on in uh, and our economic system and our criminal just so-called criminal justice system and so on and so forth you can't help seeing that racism is all, all uh, absolutely pervasive but I don't know I it's you know uh, I guess all I would say is that um, that the culture and the way that white folks uh, respond to it um, makes us really good at at failing to see that do you think it's um, conscious? So, no, I don't think I don't think so. But that's where I was trying to when I talked about sort of the two the two aspects: ignorance on the one hand, and then you could call it willful ignorance, right? And willful resistance, um, where and it's hard to separate those two things. I think in it's it becomes a little bit of a psychological puzzle with you know with each individual as to where we are on that spectrum or whatever. And in this one, this latest episode, there's a there's a gentleman, a 60 year old white guy from, well, he lives in Charlotte, North Carolina now, but he's from Wisconsin, and he exhibits this kind of really striking uh, unwillingness to face the facts when he's just been presented with them in the in the episode about white affirmative action. Mm-hmm. He's just after listening to this whole presentation, he just is completely unmoved. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so what is that? Is it conscious? And, and, and you know, Chenjirai kind of takes a stab and says, well, I think that's, I think that's somebody who's just being stubborn and is unwilling to, unwilling to give up anything. But I, I, you know, I don't know. I can't, you know, get it, get inside that, that guy's head. I can try to get inside my own. I was raised in relatively speaking in a in an anti-racist household and then i've been this kind of public radio reporter type you know who does all this work on race and that sort of thing but still even for somebody like me the the um the inertia or the 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 momentum of a white supremacist culture that is telling you it's all right you know it's all right we basically mean well (laughs) it is is, you know in the face of that you need to get you need to get a bucket of cold water thrown over your head many many times at least been that's been my experience yeah for it to really sink in just how just how deeply racist we are I think about that danger episode again, where you um, you admit to thinking you're kind of a swell guy who doesn't Mm -hmm. believe the hype about poor black neighborhoods and aren't you a good white guy for walking through this neighborhood was that difficult for you to, to, to share those kinds of things on your show? Um, a little bit, I guess. Uh, I, I think there would have been a time when I, when I would have had more trouble doing that. Um, it helps a little, I suppose, that, that I was telling a story on myself. Uh, the story is 30 years ago. I don't have any trouble acknowledging uh, that that as a white American, I absorbed racism. Yeah. And it's in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that it's, you know, it's a daily and um, lifelong process of basically trying to get better at seeing it and 
and not acting on it and catching yourself. And I think that's so important about your podcast series and hopefully ours as well is to say as disheartening or as uncomfortable as we may feel or vulnerable as we may feel, the discomfort we're feeling is nothing in comparison to what folks of color go through on a daily basis. Mm. That for yeah. us, it may be ego. Um, and for people of color, it's often life-threatening. Absolutely. Yeah, white fragility is a real is a real a real issue and I think we need to kind of buck up and and also be willing to um, to get I think there has been at times uh, a little bit of tension in my conversations with Chenjirai where and he has been uh, I would say kind and gentle. Um, in not sort of going at me uh, more directly mm-hmm. when he when he possibly could have, you know, and so he'll he will say things like going back to the danger episode where I said that I I, I said that thing that you know, this meant to be sort of a heartfelt thing about imagining what it's like to be on on the other side of the racial line in which you don't know if you could be the next one killed by a cop. Right. Right. And, um, and he said kind of gently, he said, well, you know, I'm glad people, (laughs) people feel things and try to think about, and, but the question is, what are we going to do? Right. And he, and he was, he, he put it, he was not kind in sort of putting that in the, in the, uh, in talking about people in general instead of he, he could have said it right to me John you know I don't really you know <laughs> I don't really I don't really care that you're trying to empathize right, <laughs> right. what are you going to do right. to dismantle this racist criminal justice system right he could have said that right and so yeah so the, I, I feel like I feel I do feel like the 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 uh present me has been vulnerable to at times and that Chandra has been pretty gentle with me. Yeah. I appreciate that. Speaking about him, I wonder if you just talk about your partnership with him just for a moment. I think it's sort of genius. It's sort of this, uh, to me, I don't know if this was your intention, but it was sort of like a white privilege check. Like, okay, this is my perspective. What am I missing here? Um, yeah. What has that been like? Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely, uh, that is the, the posturing of it, and it's also completely genuine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really did feel like I, need, I needed that backup, and that I decided that it was going to be an important part of the approach that I was going to be, you know, not just some detached journalist taking on these issues but that I'm I'm a white dude and that's you, you know let's be right up front about that yeah <laughs> and uh, that that's a that's a significant part of the story here um, you can't we can't get away from it because uh, since the whole premise is about turning the lens or it's about how we look at these things well we need to be really transparent about who it is that's doing this looking and, and and actually what happened was when I uh, I was writing a version of that um, Philadelphia stick-up story, mm-hmm. 
for the live show that we did um, now almost a year ago. And, and I felt like I needed, it just felt very kind of fraught and sensitive to me telling this story. This, you know, it's a 30 year old story, but a story about going into a um, <clears throat> low income urban neighborhood in Philadelphia and being held up by a teenager at knife point and you know it's just filled with all this you know stereotyping and these tropes and so on and I and I you know I was trying to address those things forthrightly but I still felt uh, that I that I wanted somebody I really trusted a person of color to sort of look at how I was presenting it and make sure I wasn't doing something horrible and um I asked Chandra if I could send him the script, and, and I did. Mm. And it was at that moment that I thought, um, ah, I should just get Chandra involved throughout, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's, that's, that was sort of the seed for that idea. But the way that I presented in part one is basically feeling like I am, I, uh, I'm, I'm a, not really qualified as a white person to, to take on whiteness by my, without some serious help. Yeah. Uh, from a person of color, that was absolutely genuine. So I think about you sort of shining this light on the history and the sort of creation of whiteness and um, sort of the, the two different worlds that exist for white people and everybody else. Um, and I think about how, how to shine a light on the cost of racism to white people is that mm. what it takes for white people to be motivated besides knowing the truth, but also understanding it comes at a cost to everyone? Many years ago, I interviewed uh, a guy named Bob Zellner, who was, a, uh, he was, he was part of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the Civil Rights Movement in the early 60s in, in, in the South. He was from Alabama, white guy. And he got beat up multiple times you know, al- alongside Bob Moses and people like that in Mississippi and elsewhere, Freedom Summer. He said, people ask me why I, uh, why I went south to help the black people. And he says, first of all, I didn't go south. I was, I was south. He was in Alabama. And, and I didn't set out to help the black people. I, I went looking for my own, my own redemption and my own freedom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm still trying. That was, I did that interview more than 20 years ago, and I feel like I'm still trying to unpack all of what that means. Yeah. But there's something there about, I guess, a few things I would say is that when we're not free, when we live in a society that is as unequal and unjust as the one we live in. Yeah. We're not safe, and that's something we talk about that Chenjerai says, right, in that episode that you were talking about, the danger episode, where he says, do any of us have a right to feel safe, to, be, to feel safe when so many people are not safe? It's even just that literal or that kind of physical uh, fact of having to live in gated communities or in figuratively in gated communities because we're so unequal and so there's things like you know what what imagine if we didn't you know, if it weren't like that if 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 people were not so insecure so that we would all not have to be so insecure um, but also just I think the whether whether you literally feel guilty or not 
I, I walk around with a deep sense that white people have created a very unjust society here. I think we have a responsibility once we have our eyes opened at all, a responsibility to, to, to decide, you know, are we going to be, are we going to just sort of uh, live our lives, uh, which, is to, which is to really recreate and perpetuate that society, or are we going to be part of, part of uh, changing it? But I don't, I don't feel like guilt, per se, is, high, is highly productive. Uh, whether you call it guilt or not, or a sense of um, discomfort about the fact that uh, you know the people who came before us who look like us, and 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 the people still who look like us who are out there trying to re- re- reproduce and perpetuate an unjust society, that you know that's a source of discomfort for me. To put it mildly, I feel like I would gain tremendously. In, in my mind and in my soul by living in a society that's, that's much more just than the one we live in now. And that was John Bewin, the audio program director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. He's the host of Seeing White, a 14-part podcast series exploring whiteness. We like to end our episodes by hearing from students. Today, we hear from Frederick, who's 15 and African-American. He describes the challenges that he faces as being one of the only African-Americans in his classes and how it feels when discussions of race come up at school. Sometimes I feel like like, race is like my best friend, but also my worst enemy because it's like it's always there. I'm always like constantly thinking about like at like lunch, just hanging out with friends or like in the classroom doing like math or something like if I like pick my head up and look around I can see that like I'm the only African-American kid in the room and like that like sometimes I can like drift off into like a deeper thing of like just like viewing it and feeling like what if it was like different and like like how would I act if it was different and like what would I say if I was different because like I watch myself when I'm around people that like I like watch what I say because I don't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable even though I'm already uncomfortable. It is exhausting. From my experience like with like all English class, like the main class, like when you're reading like a book is like, for me, like I read To Kill a Mockingbird, I think two years ago. And I've read like some other books like involving race in it. And like for me, like, those discussions can sometimes be the hardest because, like, you're, like, you're, like, reading about it and you, like, it's, like, you're reading about something that, like, happened so long ago, but then, like, you see it today in, like, sometimes in, like, the news and things. Also, two years ago when I was in eighth grade, we uh, studied uh, the Civil War, which, like, was really hard and like that like time of like uh segregation and such and like for that that's like maybe the hardest discussion if not one of if not the hardest discussion to talk about as like a white teacher talking about that you kind of have to be I'll get also like I said aware because what you're talking about is like a very dark but serious point of time in U.S. history and for 
a kid that maybe had like parents or like grandparents that had to like go through that it can be like really stressful because you're thinking of how like they were hurt or how they were affected and it can get them also curious like could maybe something like this happen to me or could this like this start again which is like which is like the hardest thing so like I guess what you should like could help is like check in with the kid not only before to like just like bring him to like what's gonna happen but also to check um after the conversation to see like how he's feeling and like how do you think the conversation went and like if you have any like, feedback for it just to, like reassure him that he's in like a safe place and that this wasn't like a conversation just to target him That was Frederick, a 15-year-old African-American student. You've been listening to Teaching While White. Our editor is Kate Ellis, and our sound editor and mixer is Lyra Smith. Our intern is Elena Wolfson, and our theme music is by Todd Beerson. Special thanks to our web guru, Jonathan Schmid. A big thank you to our underwriters. Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative, a group that's dedicated to looking at issues of equity and diversity on campuses across the United States. Check them out at www.easted.org. And the Multicultural Teaching Institute, a project of the Meadowbrook School of Weston. MTI offers real-world tools in multicultural teaching for teachers of pre-K through 12. On the web at multiculturalteaching.org. If you want to hear all of our programs and read our blog, go to www.teachingwhilewhite.org. Feel free to tell us what you think and share your own ideas. You can also find us on our Facebook page, Teaching While White. And please rate us on iTunes. It helps more people find our show. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>